My name is Sabila Khan, and I am one of the millions of Americans who have lost a loved one to COVID. My father, Shafkat Khan, was the loving father of three, the doting grandfather of seven, and the devoted husband to my mother for what would have been 50 years last October. As a community activist in Jersey City, he spent years carving out spaces and opportunities for others. On March 11th, as the tri-state area went into lockdown, the rehab facility where my father was receiving physical therapy for Parkinson's closed its doors to visitors. We never saw him again. It truly takes my breath away to imagine the fear, isolation, and trauma that my father suffered during the last week of his life. And in what was the most surreal and heartbreaking moment of my life, I had to watch his burial live streamed on my phone. But sadly, my story is not unique. For every COVID death, there are an estimated nine close family members left behind. Sabila Khan is one of the estimated nine million family members left behind. Her father, Shafkut, died in April 2020. He was among the first 25,000 casualties in the pandemic. On May 12, 2022, the pandemic death toll reached a grim milestone. One million lives lost. Marine Khan, and this is Inspired, a production of Interfaith Voices. Each week, we explore the beliefs shaping our world. This week, we take a closer look at the myth of closure, ways of remembering, and the paradox of living with loss. We begin with Sabila Khan. She's the co-founder of the COVID-19 Lost Support for Family and Friends group, and she's a member of COVID Survivors for Change. Tell me about your dad. Uh, my dad was 76 years old at the time that he died. He moved with us to the U.S. in 1982, loved baseball. He loved cricket. I get my passion for reading from him. He couldn't leave a written page unread. Mm. He loved food. My husband and I still talk about how he had probably the most sophisticated palate of, of anyone we know. And he was just larger than life. Like if anyone saw him, he he was scary looking. He was he was big. He was a tough guy. He was he wasn't shy or scared of anyone. He wasn't scared about speaking the truth, but he was a teddy bear. Um, he raised us with so much love and kindness and care. It is very well known in my family that when it came to illnesses, any cuts, bruises, scrapes, normal colds, he would like be completely out of commission. He couldn't deal with it. Like he did not have the stomach for it. He would be crying in the corner oh. while my mom would, would be taking care of us. He sounds like a really sensitive teddy bear. I mean, it sounds he like he was yeah. so sensitive. 
sensitive. And it's like not not many people knew that. Um, mm. And, you know, I think it really it was his sensitivity that um, that brought him to his advocacy work that he did. It was because he truly cared about people that he would really go to great lengths to take care of people in the community. So he was probably one of the smartest people I knew. And he was just a really great, interesting guy um, who was just so full of knowledge and curiosity and love. He was fierce. He loved us fiercely. He protected us fiercely. What was the reaction in your community to the news of, of his of his death? It, it was a big, big shock. Um, when he died, he had been battling a very aggressive form of Parkinson's disease. Mm. So his advocacy work had been put behind him because he was physically unable to to do the work. A friend, you know, said to me, he was like, he this he was a he was a legend. He was a legend in the community uh, because he was always the first to stand up and help anyone who needed it in any capacity. So this was from, you know, cutting through the red tape of immigration issues um, to finding housing and jobs for new immigrants, um, people who are new to the country. You know, one of the things that I think we missed when he died was seeing that outpouring of support and love from the community. The community mourning and burial in the Pakistani tradition is a bit different than in in a mainstream American culture. Yes. The expressions of grief are different. Can you describe what they're like? I imagine many of our listeners have never attended a Muslim funeral service or a Pakistani funeral service. It is an experience for the senses where people, no one is, no one is holding their, their pain back. Uh, people are crying. People are wailing. People are praying fervently together. Uh, so it is a very um, communal event, but it is very, very visibly emotional. Even as you're mourning together, as hard as things are, it's it's good to be together. Um, and and we just didn't have that. I think it would be really hard to do a memorial at this point. I don't think I'd want to do a memorial at this point. Um, Why not? Because for me, it feels like the moment is gone for the Muslim burial. Like that happened. Mm -hmm. He had the burial that he had. It was according to Muslim tradition and Muslim cultures. And we don't want to put our relatives in a position of having to fly in from other countries to gather together, you know, in person. We don't think that the situation is safe. And secondly, I think it would just be too painful for me personally. I don't think it would give me any sort of closure. What does closure mean for you? Oh my gosh, closure. I I, I don't know what closure means uh, because this was my first experience with uh, the death of someone who is so close to me. 
But even as I was going through it, I knew that it was very, very unusual. Um, and uh, seeing everything that I've seen about COVID grief, reading everything I've read about COVID grief and how, how it's trauma, um, I don't think whatever this closure is, I don't think I'm going to achieve it, sadly. Um, and I'm not sure what it means. Mm. The circumstances of his death were unfortunately so uniquely horrifying that how do you come to terms with that? I haven't in over two years, and I'm not optimistic that I will. Sabila, why did you feel the need to make your grief public? Even as I was living through this experience of my father dying in a hospital three blocks away from us, I knew that this was not normal. As as much as friends and family were reaching out to us, as much as they were emailing and calling and texting, all I wanted in that moment was to talk to other people who had gone through what I'd gone through. Mm. I could not sleep at all after my dad died. So I was up at night um, on this Facebook group called uh, Survivor Corps for people who themselves or their loved ones are going through COVID. So I posted for the first time to the group and asked if there was, if anyone was aware of a COVID bereavement group. Um, and, And at the same time, I started digging around and I couldn't find anything. So the the members of Survivor Corps started encouraging me to to start a group. And about two hours after I posted, another um, woman uh, from the New York, New Jersey area posted that she had lost her father the previous day. Mm. And she was looking for a support group as well. And without even thinking about it, I reached out to her and I said, listen, there isn't one. I lost my dad on Tuesday. I'm, um, I'm, I'm going to start one. Do you want to start this with me? And she said, yes. Four days later, um, we started this group and it was, it was truly the best thing I could have done, um, in the moment because it gave me direction in my grief. It gave me purpose in my grief. It, it, it helped. I created the community that I needed in that moment. And obviously with hindsight, I see that there is a very beautiful through line between the community work that my father did. Um, so it very quickly became for me a way to carry on my father's legacy to, to ensure that his good works didn't die with him. How many are our members today? We have over 14,000 members. It's become, you know, more than just a space for people to, to connect and, uh, share their traumas, share their grief. I, I don't know what I was expecting that on that Saturday when I started the group, but it has become a big, robust, vibrant, beautiful community. You know, as this Facebook group evolved, it also began to include um, political activism. You, you all began to talk about asking for answers to questions that 
haven't fully been answered. Right. And to be clear, the group itself, the space itself remains apolitical. Uh, We don't discriminate along political party lines. um, Because as I've put it before, COVID is an equal opportunity killer. Yeah. It sounds like your efforts to create a safe space for the bereaving um, is also mindful of the the weaponization that's happened in our political discourse around yes. public health strategies, whether people vaccine, whether they wear a mask. How did you avoid that? How did you navigate that that highly politicized weaponizing of public health strategies? It, it wasn't easy. I remember, I think it was fall of 2020, when Bob Woodward's book came out, and we had the audio tapes proving that Trump knew that this virus was was airborne. The post started spiraling at that point into political spaces that we did not allow in the group. And um, the admins, we admins were up basically for half the night, not only taking down posts, even if the poster was, was a Trump supporter, it's like we had to be mindful that these were highly traumatized individuals. We would reach out to the poster and be very gentle, just a reminder that we don't allow this kind of political discourse in this space. Uh, And I remember at one point, I was sobbing in front of the computer. I was literally getting attacked from both sides by like Mm. anti-Trump people and pro-Trump people. And I felt so stuck, caught in the middle. Last fall, we brought on eight moderators from the group. So we are actually approving each and every post. So that helps. Having that sort of built-in support definitely helps. But, I, you know, I, I don't know how we did it. I think people who join our group are in such pain. They're looking for any sort of support. You know, it doesn't matter if it's coming from a Republican or a Democrat or um I don't know, a libertarian. It doesn't matter. They just want that community support. They're seeing these posts. They can't sleep at 3 a.m. And and they're posting, you know, I'm feeling so much guilt about my mom dying. I shouldn't have sent her to the hospital. Is there anyone else up right now? Is there anyone here? And you'll get 30 comments responding to that person saying, I'm here. I hear you. I understand. I know exactly what you're going through because I'm going through the same thing. So I think people at the end of the day are so grateful for for this space that they themselves don't want to muddy it up with with politics. Tell me about the public call you are making to lawmakers in response to what's happening. We as a group are supporting the Prevents Pandemic Act, uh, which is a bipartisan bill being brought forward by the Senate. A part of the bill is a call for a COVID commission. And I think most people in my community would agree that we need to figure out why our loved ones died, how it got so out of control, how we 
stand at 1 million lives lost in the US. We're the US where we we're supposed to be the strongest country in the world. And yet, how did we get here? How did two administrations fail us? Um, so I think there is a feeling that we need answers. I think for myself, I want to ensure that we learn some lessons from my dad dying. I don't want him to have died in vain. I want to make sure that in the event of any future pandemics, we take the lessons learned, the hard lessons learned during this one, and use them towards ensuring that all people are safe and protected. You once referred to COVID victims as an inconvenient statistic, and you worried that they were being pushed aside. Do you still feel that's true? Yes, 100%. Um, I felt that way when my father died. And I, I feel like that's even more the case now because there's this push to reopen. There's been this push to reopen since December, January. Um, and I feel like politicians don't want to align themselves with, with, with groups that represent what this virus is actually capable of doing, you know, be it long hauler communities or COVID bereaved communities. And it's like, everyone is minimizing what COVID is. Everyone is minimizing what COVID can do because the general interest right now is it's to just get on with it, to to get on with, with reopening, to get on with unmasking. I think we've we've come to terms with the fact, shockingly and very sadly, that this mass disabling and mass death event is it's gonna be a part of our lives. And it's it's shocking to me. It really renders me speechless to think that we are at this point as a nation. I'm Umbreen Khan, and you're listening to Inspired from Interfaith Voices. Sabila Khan is the co-founder of the COVID-19 Loss Support for Family and Friends. She's also a member of COVID Survivors for Change. Two years ago, everything in her life changed when her father, Shafkuth Khan, became one of the early casualties in the COVID-19 pandemic. He died suddenly and alone in a hospital just three blocks from her home. Sibila watched his burial on her phone. There were no traditional memorials or funeral prayers performed. No family came in to gather. And the grief became overwhelming. She found herself in search of others who also lost loved ones to COVID-19. Finding none, four days after her father died, she co-founded the COVID-19 Lost Support for Family and Friends. Today, it's the largest network of COVID bereaved in the world. And they offer members a variety of supports and opportunities for advocacy. It's become a major focus in Sabila's life. And as she describes... It's not always easy. I was so busy because, you know, it's like full-time job, two children, my mother's grief. Um, and then having this, I mean, this is like another full-time job on top of it, to be honest. 
I did hit some, <laughs> some periods of like absolute burnout. How do you sustain yourself? How does faith or spirituality play into this work? Prayer has really been sustaining me. Uh, it's It's been very, very helpful over the past two years. What does your prayer practice look like? I'll either read the Quran or I will just pray. I have a digital thesby on my phone um, and I will pray on that. Um, I'll just say random prayers. It's not very... Um, it's your own practice. It's my own practice, but it's been very sustaining. Uh, but I have, I feel like ever since my dad died, I feel like I have a stronger connection to God. Like I have a person there. Um, so I do find that prayer helps me in a way that it probably never has in my life. Mm. Um, and aside from that, it's like a romance novels. <laughs> <laughs> so there's faith, but there is also the consumption of, um, of romance novels. It's like I've been binging on romance novels. It sounds like you're finding all the different things that give you some <laughs> space and some comfort in all the different. It's, it's a balance. And as wonderful as having our faith to lean on is, if there's anything I've learned over the past two years, it's that there's certain traumas that that require more interventions. Sometimes you need to see a therapist as much as, as you love your faith and as sustaining as you find prayer. Sometimes you need professional help. And I really hope that these conversations happen in a real meaningful way in our communities. It's so much happening this month. Um, Memorial Day weekend is also the two-year anniversary of the killing of George Floyd. And there are all these reckonings happening. You have lots of different communities. You've got your work community, your family community, your survivor community. Are you, are you seeing things that give you hope? Oh, <laughs> I truly wish there was something giving me hope. I think it would make it would make things a lot easier for me, but it's, it's been hard. These past two years have been hard. Life will never go back to normal. No, life is nowhere near normal. Obviously, is no going back to normal for us. This is our new normal. We're in the middle of another surge. Hospitalizations are rising. I'm constantly in fear for, for my mother, who is elderly. Um, I can't lose another, I can't lose a parent, I can't lose my mother to this. So this is very much a reality for me, and I think it's very much a reality for many, many people in the COVID-bereaved community. And I think we don't have the privilege of walking away from this. Do you think you'll see your dad again? Do you feel his presence? There were a couple of times when I've really, really felt his presence. That was reassuring. Um, I, 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 it's so hard for me to think about the afterlife as I'm going through this very sort of current 
and visceral experience of 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 trauma right now but it does give me hope to be reunited that we will all die we are all meant to die at some points Sevilla, thank you so much for sharing. You've really opened up, and that vulnerability is something that not many are willing to share, especially around loss. Well, thank you for the opportunity. Sibila Khan is a native of Jersey City. She co-founded the COVID-19 Loss Support for Family and Friends Network. Part of her journey remembering and honoring her dad's legacy is advocating for policy change and accountability. Khan wants bipartisan legislation to pass that will strengthen the nation's public health and medical preparedness and response systems in the wake of the COVID-19 pandemic. She also wants to see the creation of an independent COVID commission. Here she is speaking at a press conference with members of Congress explaining why. We come from diverse backgrounds and political affiliations. And in spite of our differences, most of us would agree on the fact that a COVID commission is urgently needed. Today, we believe that a nonpartisan, independent, equitable, fully funded, comprehensive, and fair COVID commission must center the voices, experiences, and needs of the communities most gravely impacted by this virus not only the bereaved, but also frontline healthcare workers and COVID long haulers. We must take a full and unvarnished look at what happened and why, so that we can understand how to make sure it never happens again. We demand support from both sides of the aisle for this, because if COVID has shown us anything, it's that viruses don't discriminate across party lines. And in order to properly safeguard Americans from a future pandemic, we need to start doing the same. We expect the findings to set into motion legislation and best practices that will save lives and spare others the trauma that millions of us are suffering today. And I want to add that while none of the findings will change the fact of how our loved ones died, a COVID commission can bring so many families some measure of closure and healing. Closure is a perfectly good word for a store that's closing or a road that's closed because of a flood. That's closure. But it's an inappropriate and hurtful word to use for people who have lost a loved one. That's Pauline Boss. She's a pioneer in family therapy and stress studies. Back in the 1970s, she coined the term ambiguous loss and went on to create a therapeutic framework for therapists and mental health clinicians to build resilience in clients who face the trauma of loss without resolution. Her work began with families of soldiers missing in action. Our language and understanding of grief, she found, falls short, and that makes us ill-equipped to manage the stress of loss. It's the case she lays out in her most recent book, her seventh, The Myth of Closure, Ambiguous Loss in a Time of Pandemic and Change. When we come back, she offers insights and suggestions on how to tolerate ambiguity, build resilience, and emerge from crisis stronger 
than we were before. You're listening to Inspired, a production of Interfaith Voices. Stay with us. Hi, friends. I hope you're enjoying the show so far. I just want to say thank you. Thank you for listening. Thank you for being part of our community. I don't know if you know this, but we are on the air all the way from Richmond, Virginia to Ketchikan, Alaska, and in so many places in between. We're a national show, and we are a small and mighty team committed to bringing you stories and sounds from around the world that convey not only the diversity and the pluralism of our country, but the beliefs that are shaping our world, our politics, our culture, and the ideas that sustain us and inspire us to think about where we are going. And that brings me to this question. If you value us, if you enjoy listening and appreciate what you're hearing, I want to ask you to take a moment to consider becoming a sustaining member of Interfaith Voices or make a one-time donation at interfaithradio.networkforgood.com. That's interfaithradio.networkforgood.com. Thank you. And let's get back to the show. I'm Umbreen Khan, and you're listening to Inspired from Interfaith Voices. I'm talking with Dr. Pauline Boss. She's a pioneer in the interdisciplinary study of family stress. Her latest book, The Myth of Closure, Ambiguous Loss in the Time of Pandemic and Change, was both an offering to others and a way for her to work through the grief and loss she was experiencing after losing her husband. Boss dedicates the first portion of the book to explaining her approach and the way she views and defines ambiguous loss. The second half is dedicated to the six practices that she argues build resilience in times of change. I spoke to her from her home in Minneapolis. At the age of 87, she explains, she herself is no stranger to loss. Pauline Boss, your pioneer in creating this framework, ambiguous loss. What is ambiguous loss? What do you mean by that? Ambiguous loss is simply an unclear loss. There's no death certificate. There's no body. There's no ritual. There are no hallmark cards for this. So there are two kinds of ambiguous loss. The first is physical. And the first group I studied was the families of the soldiers missing in action in Southeast Asia during the Vietnam War. They were missing physically, and that was very hard on the families. The second kind of ambiguous loss is psychological, and that's where the person is there, perhaps even in front of you, living with you, but their mind is gone and their memory is gone. And the example of that would be dementia, Alzheimer's disease, and the over 80 other kinds of dementia. 
that there can be. There are also um, more common examples of ambiguous loss. For example, with physical ambiguous loss, it might be divorce and adoption, where one parent is no longer living in the household, or adoption where a mother has to give up a child, and the child doesn't know where the parents are. So it's a two-way ambiguous loss. And in most cases, ambiguous loss leads to uncertainty and a sort of frozen kind of uh, grief, a confusion about, I feel like I've lost something, but I don't quite know what it is. Mm. And so it's a very vague area that can lead to anxiety, almost always, and depression sometimes, but I would also say sadness always. How do you see ambiguous loss playing out in the pandemic? Where is it most felt? We're a culture of certainty, and we like that and mastery. But now and then something comes along, like COVID, like death, like terminal illness, like some kind of loss that you can't explain. And, and we have to realize that we have to live with that too. What you do is you balance it with both and thinking, I both have a loss and I have some joy in life. I both am grieving and have some joy in seeing my grandchildren. It's the closest to the truth that we can come, is both and thinking. And with the pandemic, you might say something like, I both hate this pandemic and I can become more resilient and live with it. I both find I'm losing control over some parts of my life and I'm discovering some new things I can do that I didn't know I could do before. And of course, that is now. That is now. You also write about discomfort with suffering is rooted in a view that suffering is a failure. Yes. What did you mean by that? Well, that's the mastery orientation of our culture. I mean, we're very, very good in this country, and others are not always like it in that, you know, we cleared the plains, we settled, the pioneers settled, straightened the rivers. We put a man on the moon. We put a camera in outer space. We cured a lot of illnesses. And, of course, we found the vaccine in record time. Uh, So we're a very mastery-oriented culture. And perhaps because of that, we don't like loss. We don't like suffering. We don't like something we can't master and fix. And there are many things now that we see we can't master and fix. We've lost over a million people. And people would look at that as failure to fix. Well, sometimes it's inevitable. Suffering is sometimes inevitable. You wrote this book shortly after losing your husband. And you yes. you, you bring that experience into it in a very personal way. I needed to put myself in this book because I was struggling with the pandemic as well. And then my husband's illness and eventual death. So I did write it first person. I'm as much trying to learn how to live with ambiguity and ambiguous losses myself as the reader is. The title of the new book is The Myth of Closure. And I know there's no closure, nor do I want it. 
and the experts say, nor do we need it. I want to remember him. I want to remember the people in my family who have gone um, and who have died in the past. And I write about my little brother who died of the polio epidemic in the 1950s. So, so yes, I'm in the book, but I need to tell you that the book had a very different plan originally because I planned it at least uh, five, seven years ago before the pandemic. And it was going to be a more therapy book. And it was because of the pandemic and because of my husband's illness and my own confusion about what was going on that I changed the format of the book. And frankly, I'm glad I did. Hmm. For someone who hears that the title of this book is The Myth of Closure, I I honestly, in almost any conversation I have with someone about a painful experience, especially losing someone, the word closure comes up. I know it does. It's a favorite in American public, probably not anywhere else. And I've worked with enough people when I was doing therapy who are so hurt by that. People who have lost loved ones do not want to be told there will be closure because they want to remember the person. What they want is to be over the pain. They want some certainty about the loss. That is, they'd like to know where the body is. They'd like to know that the death is made real by a death certificate. And of course, the people I have been working with for the past 40 years are the people with missing loved ones who have none of those markers. And that's why I found that closure is a myth even for them. They have no closure. They have no death certificate. They have no body to bury. But I realized that people with a clear-cut death also want to remember their loved one. They don't want closure either. It's a misnomer. Closure is a perfectly good word for a store that's closing or a road that's closed because of a flood. That's closure. But it's an inappropriate and hurtful word to use for people who have lost a loved one. What we mean is that we hope you have certainty. We hope you find peace. We hope you find justice if it was a loss due to a crime. But closure is the wrong word. Mm. You wrote that creating kind of the absolute of closure blocks not only self-understanding, but empathy. It does. It does. Why does it do that? Uh, We believe in mastery and cures and fixing things. And indeed, we're pretty good at that. So when people have a loss, which is the opposite of winning, which we like, Uh, Loss is considered a failure, and suffering is considered the inability to stop it. And so we are very eager for words like closure. The idea of closure means you get over it, and you get over it fast. Uh, That's inhumane. Mm. And we need to become more like the Eastern culture, where they understand that suffering is part of life. You're listening to Inspired, a production of Interfaith Voices. I'm Umbreen Khan. I'm talking with Dr. Pauline Boss. She's a pioneer in the interdisciplinary study of family stress. Before the break, she described how her latest book, The Myth of Closure, Ambiguous Loss in the Time of Pandemic and Change, 
was both an offering to others and a way for her to work through the grief and loss she was experiencing after losing her husband. Boss dedicates the first portion of the book to explaining her approach and the way she views and defines ambiguous loss. The second half is dedicated to the six practices that she argues build resilience in times of change. Let's get back to the conversation. You offer up a very hopeful message of there are six things you can consider or think about. Can you talk about them briefly? Sure. They're based on meaning, mastery, identity, ambivalence, attachment, and new hope. Um, In fact, these are things you might touch upon, but not in that order and go back and do it again later on. Finding meaning in your loss is important for you to live with it. And we will eventually find meaning in this pandemic and all that has happened um, these last few years. And by the way, most of us are uh, mastery oriented. And I do believe that people need some mastery in their life. You need some control over your life. And I was delighted to hear so many people were baking bread and sourdough bread and so on during the pandemic, because if you can't control your outside life, you find something you can control that's smaller. So that was a wonderful adaptation. Your identity changes too. uh, When you have ambiguous losses, you're not the same person you used to be. Um, People who have missing loved ones, they're not sure if they're still a wife or a mother. You have someone who has dementia and it's your parent You know, are you now the parent to your parent because you're taking care of them? So it's confusing, too. And ambivalence is a normal outcome of ambiguity. And there's oftentimes guilt with that, which is better than shame. Shame has some self-loathing with it. And if you have shame about the ambivalence you're feeling toward a parent with dementia or an ambiguous loss of some kind, You probably should talk with someone about that. And attachment, of course, is interfered with by ambiguous losses and clear-cut losses. And so what we need to do, for example, when there's a death in the family, the attachment shifts. It isn't cut. The door isn't shut. Closure is a myth. And finally, we need to find new hope about all the deaths that have occurred, loved ones who are on. We need to find new hope about the ambiguous losses, the loss of trust in the world as a safe place, the loss of being able to be with loved ones when we want it to be, the loss of our routines and so on. So things won't go back to normal. That's, uh, That's a fallacy. Things will change, but let's hope the change is for the better. And so that's what I mean by let's think about new hope. What is it we would hope for a better world than we had before the beginning of 2020? Mm. In your book, you write and you connect that to slavery in the United States. Yes, I'm learning from my Black colleagues um, that there indeed is a cross-generational transmission of trauma. Uh, We knew that from the Holocaust research, but there's other research going on now. It's called epigenetics. 
uh, finding that it's not just how we raise our children, but it's the fears and trauma we bring to our parenting that matters. And so I was writing about the George Floyd killing here in Minneapolis and how it awakened at least me to knowing that there has been a cross-generational transmission of trauma from the days of slavery, when families were sold apart from one another, children from their parents and parents from one another on the auction block, never to know where the other one was. The family wasn't permitted to be a family. And and that all the trauma that happened back then and, and during Reconstruction has been passed on down across the generations So we can't call it post-traumatic stress because there's nothing post about it. I, um, as I think about coming on the two-year anniversary of the murder of George Floyd, the national protests, the um, election of President Biden, the insurrection in the United States Capitol, the deep documentation around our polarized attitudes about each other that are driven so much by our political identity more than other identities as it used to be, and our disaffiliation or our loosening connection to community because of this, whether it's pandemic or whether it is other strains and stresses. And I think about all of that, and it is... It it creates, I'm going to say, a, a level of anxiety when I think about how much unresolved pain and how much trauma people feel. That's true, but I have a different viewpoint of it. Yes, it's painful now and uncomfortable and anxiety-producing for the entire society and different groups within society. We're in a time of chaos due to the pandemic, due to racial killings, due to um, economic problems, due to healthcare disparities. We're in a mess right now, let's face it, it's chaotic. But that always has in our history preceded a time of change and betterment. And that's how I see and hope it will pan out for us this time, that we truly are a family of men and women who can be decent to each other. I want to ask you one last question. It's about that making meaning. You described as a child that one of the ways that your family coped with your brother's death, Eddie, was to raise money. You write about raising money for a charity to help support others. How does advocacy and campaigning and working to kind of change systems, is that part of the meaning making or is it something different? Well, it does include action. Yes, you're right about that. Uh, You can't just sit and think about it. It requires some action. Uh, Something has to change. And as I said, my my family, this was, we were not rich at all. And we went door to door collecting dimes for the March of Dimes. So it was a small thing, very small, but it gave us purpose to deal with a life that was made no sense to us. Eddie played junior high football one Friday night and he died the next Friday. 
because it was bulbar polio and went very fast. Uh, so we had, we were grieving terribly. And in fact, going house to house collecting dimes, you see, made us connect with other people, which is also helpful in dealing with uh, this kind of loss. So you need to find a purpose in the loss. Sometimes if it's a murder, for example, um, people say, well, now they have closure because the murderer was sentenced uh, to prison. No, they don't have closure. They have justice. Uh, and so acknowledgement and justice are also necessary to make sense out of a loss. Somebody has to say, you had a loss uh, and it was, it was bad. I'm sorry about that. But wanting change requires action. And so you need to find a purpose in that loss. And as we go into Memorial Day weekend, how will you be spending this time? Well, uh, this week I went to my hometown, which is six hours away, and decorated the graves of Eddie and my parents. Uh, and uh, my sister's son decorated her grave, and I saw him. And then this weekend, since I'm back in Minneapolis, I'll obviously take flowers to where my husband's remains are. Uh, and then, frankly, I'll try to find something joyful to do. So it will be both a weekend of sadness and a weekend, I hope, of joyful remembering of all the loved ones we have had and, and how they've contributed to our lives. And frankly, because I'm very supportive of the military, I'm very thankful for all the soldiers and um, military people who have given their lives to defending the people of this country as well. Dr. Boss received her Ph.D. in Child Development and Family Studies from the University of Wisconsin-Madison. A pioneer in the interdisciplinary study of family stress for over 30 years, she's worked on connecting family science, sociology, family therapy, and psychology. She's the author of seven books, her latest, The Myth of Closure, Ambiguous Loss in the Time of Pandemic and Change. That's all for this week's show. Special thanks to our founder, Maureen Fiedler. This week's producers were Kevin McCarthy and Kimberly Winston. Music and sounds by Blue Dot Sessions, Audio Binger, and a special shout out to MC Yogi for our theme music. If you missed any portion of this program, you can head over to interfaithradio.org, where you can sign up for the podcast, hit the newsletter, learn more about us, and explore the archives. Wherever you are, friends, I hope you are well, I hope you are safe, and I hope you stay connected. And I'll see you next week. I'm your host and executive producer, Umbreen Khan. Khan.